Welcome to See Uncovered, a place where you'll find the stories of proven entrepreneurs. I'm your host, Ashley Henschel. Welcome to See Uncovered. Today we have on Adam Davidson. Adam Davidson is a man of many talents. He's a businessman, writer, podcaster, and a master storyteller. He is the co-founder of NPR's Planet Money podcast, one of the earliest podcasts, and a staff writer for The New Yorker. He is the winner of several awards in journalism, including the Peabody for his coverage in the financial crisis. He attended high school at Syvesson High School in New York City and college at the University of Chicago. Thank you for coming on, Adam. Thank you very much. I usually don't get the high school reference, but I guess your <laughs> audience. <laughs> yeah, we're I'm in New York right now, so I, I kind of wanted to add that in for our New York listeners. All right, great. We say Stuyvesant. Stuyvesant. I'm from Chicago, so I'm learning okay. too. Okay. All right. I went to Chicago, but um, <laughs> for college. You, my, you, you might pick up on my accent. Well, I say Chicago because- yeah, I, I just lived there so long. I guess that's a word I said all the time. Did you <laughs> live in the city, I'm guessing, when you went to school? Yeah, I lived in Hyde Park and then um, up on the, like, near Wrigleyville. And then I lived all over. I was there about a decade. It's yeah, a fun I love, area. I love Chicago. Yeah, I love <laughs> Chicago. <laughs> so yeah. just starting out, it's a loaded question, but who is Adam Davidson? Can you just give us some background on who you are? Sure. I mean, I, I grew up in, I didn't know it was a weird context, but I now was a grown up. No, it was. I grew up in all artist housing in Greenwich Village in, in Manhattan. So, you know, Greenwich Village, certainly when I was growing up, I was born in 1970, was, it, it was a pretty marginal neighborhood. It was, now it's super fancy and really expensive and lots of fancy shops and restaurants and stuff. But back then it was, it was still the dying age of warehouses and mm-hmm. um, kind of derelict buildings. I mean, it's hard to believe walking around Manhattan now that that existed. But yeah, I got mugged repeatedly right around yeah. my house. And the building I grew up in, you had to apply to live there. You had to be an artist to live there. My dad's an actor and my mom's had different roles, dancer, actor, running arts organizations. And so I grew up in this world that was very creative, a lot of artists, you know, most of my friends' parents were artists, most of my parents' friends were artists, and almost nobody I knew growing up, like, had a job, you know, they were creative people, and they might have, you know, they might wait tables or work in an office to pay the bills while they painted or something, but, you know, I didn't really know grown-ups who, you know, wore suits and ties, except you know, for like funerals and weddings. I didn't know, I didn't really know how the world worked. I just, I knew this one world. I didn't realize I didn't know that because, you know, you grow up and you just think where you grow up is everywhere. And so when I left college and went to University of Chicago, I, that really was, a lot of people talk about going to college and they learn about drugs and other things. And for me, it was like the opposite. Like I knew about all that stuff. What I didn't know about was like the boring day-to-day stuff. I didn't know, you know, just people whose parents had like a regular job. And so I, I grew up in a very left-wing world. I 
really didn't know any Republicans. And as a kid, I didn't understand how Ronald Reagan kept winning since literally no one I'd ever met liked him. And then, so going to college and then after college, I sort of felt like, I don't know, like an immigrant to America, even though I'm an American and I grew up in America. And it really wasn't until my 30s that I really plugged into using economics and business as a way to understand the world. Like I'm not, I don't follow the stock market. I don't really know what it's doing on any given day. I don't, it's not like I inherently care about everything business or economics. It's that I realized that to understand how the world works, that is a key part of how the world works. It's like Mm -hmm. the secret rule book of the board game we're all playing. But I realized as I got older, like, oh, so many people don't know any, like the way a lot of business media works, business news, business journalism, business books is they assume you already know a whole bunch of things that I think a lot of people don't know from like basic financial stuff. Like what's a stock? What's a bond? Why should I care what the Federal Reserve does? All the way to like more profound questions about like, why do we work so much? Why, you know, what is, what is the value of a life? You know, mm-hmm. um, and so my work at NPR with Planet Money and then my work in other places has really been about trying to bring, I mean, it sounds similar to what you do, trying to bring business and economic ideas to a broader audience and not just translate them, but really help them understand why they, why they should care. What, what, why does this matter? When what was the first time you were introduced to the concepts of money and financials? Was that in college or did you get briefed it on it? It really in high was neither. I mean, it really was like later. You know, it's funny, University of Chicago has a very strict core curriculum. You have like half the classes you take in your four years are re- in various required areas. Mm-hmm. But if you do it just right, how I did it, you'll never read Adam Smith. You'll never take an econ course at all. I don't remember anything in high school about it. Stuyvesant High School is a science and math school. I can't remember anything about economics. So I really, I knew a lot more about a lot of other stuff. I really knew very, very little. And, you know, one of the great things about journalism is you really are kind of self-directed. You can you know, you sort of pick a path and you can, and I would try at various points in my twenties, I produced a public radio talk show or a variety of them at WBEZ, the public radio station in Chicago, um, in right after college and through my twenties. And I would read up, I'd talk to people. I didn't really get it. It it, it was, it all felt so confusing. Weirdly enough, the place that it really all came together for me was Iraq. I went to Iraq, you know, the U.S. invaded Iraq the second time in 2003, in March of 2003. In April of 2003, the U.S. took over Baghdad. And I came to Baghdad like right after the U.S. took over, although there was still a lot of fighting and a lot of violence, but it was, you know, occupied by the U.S. military. And I spent about a year in Baghdad. And I had spent a fair bit of time. I was Middle East correspondent. I'd been I grew up going to Israel a lot because my mom's from Israel. I spent time in Jordan and Syria and Lebanon, Turkey, Kuwait, but most of my time was in Iraq. And you hear so much about the religious 
battles, you know, Jews versus Muslims, Sunni versus Shia, Mm -hmm. Muslims versus Christians, like, and my degree in college was history of religion. So I thought, oh, I'll have a leg up because I know all this stuff about religion. But when I would interview people, I found what they really cared about was like basic, like, how am I going to get enough food? What kind of future do my kids have? Like, what are the rules? What's the system? And that really made me see, like, in America, we have this privilege of we get to make this choice of not caring about economics because, you know, having spent time in Iraq, having spent a lot of time in Haiti and other very poor countries, you know, we have poverty in America and it's terrible and we shouldn't have poverty as much poverty, but we don't have global poverty. We don't have poverty like you see in other countries. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the America has become more uncertain, but, the average person in America does not really have to ask these fundamental questions. Like, will I have enough food for my family? Will my kids be able to survive or, and maybe even thrive or do better than I did. And so I really learned economics is fundamental to everything you care about life, including art. I mean, the very fact that like, you don't go to Haiti or Iraq and see buildings filled with people who just make a living as artists because there are artists, but they're not, they have to do something else to survive. Mm-hmm. In fact, I, I met a lot of artists in Iraq whose entire life was just painting post pictures of Saddam Hussein, the dictator. So uh, Iraq really opened my eyes to like, oh, economics is not like this separate category, this other thing that like some people can choose to be into mm-hmm. and everyone else can choose to ignore it really whether you want it to or not it's fundamental to your quality of life the choices you get to make the way you feel how you relate to your family and so so that really got me excited and and that really propelled you know that's 20 years ago that's really propelled the last 20 years of my life would you say that's something that made you want to start planet money it took a while i mean planet money came about 5 years later Mm-hmm. To be totally honest, I I was really bored afterwards. So <laughs> I came back from Iraq. I was working at NPR and I was covering crises. Like, I don't know if you've heard of the big tsunami. There's this massive tsunami that killed like 250,000 or more people mm-hmm. in Indonesia and Sri Lanka and stuff. Um, so I went, I covered that. I went to Indonesia. That was really rough. Um, I covered Hurricane Katrina, which destroyed... New Orleans, you know, I would travel the world covering crises. Most of the time, I was just a business reporter in New York covering like what the stock market did or what interest rates are. And it was actually kind of a rough couple of years there because I was like, you know, I was in Iraq. I was, you know, it's an exciting place to be. I was falling in love with the woman who's now my wife, another American journalist. And then I'm suddenly in New York and I'm like, have to report on the stock market and who cares about like who cares and yeah it just didn't feel urgent it didn't feel vital it didn't feel like it was connected to people's Mm -hmm. lives in any real way and i was very very frustrated and that that's what so it was more the boredom that led to planet money where i was like Mm -hmm. well how would we bring that kind of energy that kind of way of thinking 
about economics in an ongoing way. How would we mm -hmm. do like an ongoing thing? This was also right when podcasting is, you know, when you work at a radio station before podcasting, everything you do is broadcast, which is to say, you know, NPR is a national network. So we would have to create content that would reach, you know, Alabama and New York City and San Francisco and Minnesota. And it would reach everybody, you know, 18-year-olds and 80-year-olds. And and so there's sort of a pressure to kind of be a little bland, I would say, like a little, like, because anything that would excite an 18-year-old would probably turn off an 80-year-old. And anything that would excite an 80-year-old would probably turn off an 18-year-old. Or if you're really going for the San Francisco audience, I don't know if you get the Alabama audience, you know. And so broadcast tends to kind of flatten things, make it, but podcasting, you know, and I, I think Planet Money was like the first real news podcast produced by like professional news people. Yeah. That was what started getting me excited. It's like, oh, podcasting, because each person gets to choose what podcast they listen to, we can have a more intense relationship. Our audience will probably be smaller, but we could probably go into a little more detail. We could have, we could have more of our personalities. We could, you know, mm -hmm. and so that's what led, you know, that it was that thinking. And then totally by accident, like we just picked the idea that we'll launch in September, 2008. We'd spent the summer of 2008, like preparing. And that was President Obama's first campaign. He was running against John McCain. And our thinking was, we thought, well, we're launching this business economics show. It's a presidential campaign. So no one's really going to care what we do. That way we could do it kind of quietly mm -hmm. and then kind of get good at it. And then, you know, maybe in the next year, we'll really launch. Yeah. And this was still a time when nobody knew what podcasts were. Like nobody. It, it was just this weird geeky thing that a few people listened to. Like it was not a thing. But we had a sense, like, oh, this will become a thing, you know? Mm -hmm. So we picked this date, September 8th, to launch. And then literally, like, the world <laughs> collapsed. The financial system collapsed. And, you know, I don't know what you remember. Um, so you would have been around 10. But there really were a couple weeks there, two or three weeks, where truly there was a decent chance that our fundamental way of life was collapsing. Mm -hmm. And the flow of money in a crisis is not just a convenience. It's necessary. Like you start thinking, you know, why do we have electricity? It's because somewhere there's a power plant that's buying fuel and hire and paying for workers. And then there's all this stuff happening. Well, if they can't, if they have no ability to buy stuff and to pay their workers, what happens there? Yeah. You go to a supermarket. Now, I lived in New York City. I mean, they say like Manhattan has like a day and a half or something of supply because real estate's really expensive in Manhattan. And so if the supermarkets can't buy more food, how are they going to get food? And so you start imagining a world without electricity, without food. I mean, it, and pretty soon, you know, communications collapses. You don't have TV, you don't have phone, you don't. And, you know, it starts to feel more like Iraq in the worst days of Iraq, where you're, you know, people were really, and I'm not saying like 
crazy people on the street. I'm talking about the most serious people in the world, like really serious, kind of boring economists and government officials. It was like, oh, we might, this might be the end of civilization, literally. Like there might be armed gangs, like guns will still work if you have enough and bullets, you know, like armed gangs stealing food from people. Like it might get to that. Like that really felt like that's the level of fear. And that that was a real possibility. So suddenly, but what was weird is I'd be having these conversations. So normally I would interview an economist and stuff, and they're so boring, I can't believe it. You know, well, we believe that in this uh, interest rate environment that there is a switch of asset classes away from equities and towards more fixed income securities. And you're like, not a single word of that. Is interesting or in English or yeah. (laughs) And and I learned, you know, I learned what all those words meant and I learned how to translate it. But normally my job was taking the most boring stuff possible and trying to make it interesting. But now it was the opposite where I'd talk to the super boring, serious people, and they're basically like, Do you have a basement? You should put food and water and buy a shotgun. And then I go out on the street and the average person has no idea, just didn't. Mm -hmm. They have a sense that there's like something called a financial crisis, but they don't know how serious it is. They don't know how crazy, how risky it is. And so it was like almost the opposite crisis. And so we went from not existing to suddenly like we're at the center of this. And I do think we did a very good job of helping people understand what's going on, but doing it in a thoughtful, interesting, like dynamic way, but not um, overwhelming way yeah. so and all your experiences that point kind of blended into reality from working in crisis yeah and, it was weird i talked about yeah. like like in a way it was scarier and more dramatic than covering a war except when you're covering a war everyone knows there's a war <laughs> like you don't have to <laughs> but here it's like you're covering something that in some ways is bigger than a war but mm-hmm. then you get on the subway to go home and everyone's just like reading and flirting and and chatting and snacking and napping and nobody cares nobody knows you know and then it was really weird it was really intense and planet money was one of the original podcasts how does it feel now in such a world where there's so many to be an og in the podcasting world yeah i mean to us, we felt late because there are, you can see, we started in 2008. There were podcasts as early as 2003, but I do think we were the first, like, we were full-time professional audio people. You know, there was This American Life. There were, there were some podcasts that had Radio Lab that really were radio shows that just lent themselves to podcasting. But we were the first, like, podcast first. So I do feel very proud of it. And I, you know, I left 10 years ago, so I ran it for the first five years, but I haven't been involved for, for a decade, but it it's, you know, done remarkably well, like, you know, over a billion downloads. It's, um, you know, it, it remains one of the most popular podcasts every, every week. And I do think we helped set like a way of thinking about this new medium. I mean, lots and lots and lots of other people also had huge contributions yeah, it does feel like podcasting has gone through several iterations and it's kind of in a different place now. But yeah, I do feel like I don't feel like I'm like the biggest deal in the world, but I feel like yeah, I get a little mention in the history of podcasting. I get there's like I don't know that I get a chapter, but I get like a couple paragraphs. <laughs> 
What prompted you to write your book, The Passion of Economy? Yeah, the idea of the passion economy was, you know, in a lot of ways it came out of, so I covered the financial crisis and then the next several years, that was my main work was me Mm -hmm. covering it. And then me, you know, leading this team of people who are covering it. And it was dark, dark times. Like, so there was that two or three weeks where it really felt like we might not live to see the end of this year. You know, it felt, it was like at that level. Then that panic subsided and it just, but it started to dawn on us. Like this isn't going to be a thing where the economy is just really bad for a few months and then it gets better. This is deeper than that. A lot of ideas that I think now are just seen as sort of obvious and like rising inequality and the idea that working hard isn't enough to get ahead in America Mm -hmm. and that, you know, the rules are a little bit rigged against some people and just the economy, you know, the 20th century economy for much of the 20th century really needed a lot of bodies and it really rewarded like if you could go work in a factory and you didn't have much education and you weren't like wildly intelligent, but you were like a solid person willing to put in a full day's work, like you could make a real living. You could buy your family a house. You could assume your kids are going to do better than you did. And I think these days that probably for a lot of people feels like a naive idea, like that that isn't true. And really the financial crisis, there was sort of the the short and medium term crisis, which was about the bubble and, you know, from like 2002 to 2007, and then the bubble bursting. That's a limited thing, but it also revealed all this other stuff that had been going on for like 30, 40 years where the U.S. had just become increasingly unequal and and the growth of vast wealth and the loss of opportunity in other parts of the economy. And so it was a grim time for me (laughs) covering all of that. But there was this thing I kept noticing, like sort of by accident, which was that there seemed to be these people I would bump into who were doing really well in a different way, like a new way that I thought, oh, that's interesting. And at first it was like, I met one person. I'm like, wait, you're not not following the script. Like the script was like, become a hedge fund person and make billions or you're totally screwed, you know, that kind of yeah. thing. And, and I would meet these people who hadn't gone to a great college or maybe didn't go to college at all, but were finding a way to make a really good living, maybe not becoming wildly rich, but make a really good living by I, kind of doing the opposite of what the economy rewarded in the 20th century. And so I got excited about it. And then I wrote the book about it. And so the idea is, you know, before, say, the Civil War, before like the 1870s, 1880s, most people who had ever lived were farmers. And even the people who weren't farmers, most of them just did what their parents did. The rich people, you know, these were often inherited titles. Um, poor people still would do, you know, they were a chimney sweep or they were a peddler or whatever. And you had people who did different things. You had people who moved. Also, most economies were very local. Like you can imagine before trains and cars and 
you know, what's happening in Philadelphia isn't necessarily all that related to what's happening in Chicago, say. Um, I remember seeing in Chicago, like how long it takes to get from New York to Chicago on this graph. And like, you know, it used to take five weeks. It was, it was like a big, (laughs) big thing. And so you slowly and then very quickly have the nationalization of the economy, like where, you know, I think we're used to that now. We don't think of like, oh, there's a recession in Baltimore, but there's no recession in Georgia or something. Mm-hmm. Like we we think of a national economy. I think a lot of us think of like the job market we're in is kind of national. We might prefer to live in New York or Chicago, but if we got a really good job offer in Atlanta, we'd go live there. Those are relatively new ideas. But the big, big, big change from the, like the 1880s to like the 1980s is the growth of big companies, big industries that were really built about around sameness, being the same, you know, making like ivory soap or Snickers candy bars, or, you know, you, you, you had the clothes your mom made you. If you buy anything, it was like the local style, which might be totally different from two towns over. And then suddenly with these national brands and these national, these giant, giant companies, which had never existed, no institution had ever been like 100,000 people all work for U.S. Steel or Procter & Gamble or Kellogg Cereal or whatever. And it really promoted this sameness. So we didn't even used to have job titles. And education passed, you know, in 1900, something like 10% of Americans finished high school. Like, even finishing high school was, like, more elite than finishing colleges today. So, the 20th century really rewarded being the same, becoming an accountant, becoming an advertising executive, and copying what all the other ones wore, copying what all the other ones like their job path, mm-hmm. you're more likely to work at one place your entire career and slowly climb up the ladder. Where you went to college really did determine a lot of like what the rest of your life would be like. And I kind of grew up in the tail end of that. I think, I mean, you could tell me better than I, but your generation sort of doesn't, like my generation struggled with that and was like, I don't know if that's true anymore. I feel like your yeah. generation is like, what are you talking about? That's ridiculous. Like, <laughs> 100%. Yeah. Like you just assume you're going to work for lots of different companies. You're going to have ups and downs. And mm-hmm. you, and what's really fundamentally weird and different is that being the same is like the worst thing now. Like if you go for a job and you're like, I am exactly average, You know, just, yeah, just, (laughs) all right, I'm an accountant and I do things the way all your other accountants do it. Mm -hmm. But if you went to that same company in 1950 and said, I got my own way of doing things, it's pretty awesome, then you're out. (laughs) And and, and you have to say, like, I, I am standard, I am normal, I am boring. So that's, to me, on the one hand, it's, I think it's way more exciting. Like, personally, I don't want to be the same. On the other hand, it's really confusing because there's not an obvious model to follow. You got to, you know, it's like when your teacher says you can write an essay about anything. It's harder than if they say, write an essay about the Declaration of Independence or something. Mm -hmm. And so you, you have to figure yourself out more. It's also less stable. Like, kind of the big choice you made 
you know, I remember my grandfather told me, like, he got out of high school. He already had a kid. He was already married. He got, there were three jobs available. He picked one. And then that was his career. He was in the machine tools industry for the rest of his life. And that's it. He made one choice. He didn't think about it. He was 18. Boom. He might've been 17. And then suddenly he's 70. And that was the industry he was in. And if he had just walked a block over and applied at that place, maybe he'd be in a totally different industry. You're probably going to have to make dozens of decisions like this year, right? You know, like you're, it's a totally different thing. And so that's what my book's about. It's sort of how different people find ways to thrive in this more chaotic, but more personalized system. I think it really relates. And obviously this podcast is geared towards high school students. And I wanted to ask you your opinion on those who are going to college, but don't know what to major in and not knowing their passion yet. What is the best route for those students? So one thing I really regret in the book is I didn't do a good enough job making clear that what I mean by this idea of passion, because I don't mean it. I think a lot of young people, I've heard that from Mm -hmm. a lot of young people. It actually makes me feel bad because it wasn't what I meant in the book, but I somehow, some people got the impression it's what I meant. I don't think a passion is like you either have one or you don't. Mm -hmm. And if you don't, you're screwed. (laughs) And if you do, you're going to make a fortune. Like passion is an ongoing thing. My passions today are different from my passions, certainly when I was in high school, but even more so what I wanted like two years ago. Or, And also passion is the way I think about it. There's a lot of dimensions. I mean, there is like, I want to be an actor or I love advertising or yeah. I'm good with numbers. What can I do with that? You know, maybe I'll be an accountant or a trader or whatever. But there's also like the context in which you work. Do you want to do solo projects and really like are you kind of introverted and like zooming in deep? Or do you want to be in a big, loud workspace with lots of people, with lots of ideas bouncing off of you? Do you want to travel all the time? You know, when I was in high school and college, all I wanted was a job that allowed me to travel. And then I had one and then it was great for a while. And then I was like, all I want is a job that doesn't make me travel all the time, you know? Um, do you want to become a super master at something? Do you want to like, you know, my, I have a nephew who's getting his PhD in this really specific thing in computer science. And he's going to be very happy spending, you know, 40 years. To me, that sounds like death. I wouldn't, that's mm-hmm. not for me, but for him, that that's really satisfying. There's deeper and mm-hmm. deeper problems. Now you don't have to know any of these. You don't have to know any of these. You just, just knowing like, oh yeah, there's all these dimensions to passion. So like in my book, I talk about this guy, Jason, who's an accountant. He hates accounting. He finds it so boring. He did it because his dad did it. And when he went to college, he didn't know what he wanted to do. So he became an accountant. And his first like decade as an accountant, he hated every second of it. But then he realized, oh, there's a way to be an accountant that's more like me. And so now he loves his job. So what I recommend to young people is do a lot of things expose yourself to a lot of ways of working and being and be paying attention to what feels cool and what doesn't feel cool. There's this weird thing that happens as you get older is that like the older you get, the more you realize how complete you were 
at 16, 15, 17. Like I can now look back and be like, yeah, that kid is me. But at the time I had no way to know what yeah. my path would be. I did somehow know I wanted to be a journalist. I'm not even sure why I knew that, but although I think I could have had a happy life having picked a different profession. Now, I don't want to make this sound too narcissistic or too self-involved, but really at the end of the day, it's you know finding that combination of like, what really excites me? What's fun? What makes my days zoom by? And what am I, what do I seem to be pretty good at? And that's hard when you're younger because, you know, especially in your first jobs, you're not really that good at a lot of things. So I think trying different things and really just paying attention, pay attention to what is exciting. Who are you? Who do you find cool? And then what, and starting to pay attention to what are you, like, what do you seem to be Mm -hmm. good at? Um, There's a woman in my book who did that, she wrote a list of everything she thought she was good at, which was, and then circled everything she loved doing. And it's not always the same. And I think, you know, where passion comes in a lot of different ways. I mean, one, you know, there are people, there's probably some people listening who've, you know, always known I've wanted to be a vet or I've wanted to be, um, my son is the shortest kid in his sixth grade class and he wants to be in the NBA. No one in my family's tall. No one in my family is particularly good at sports. So I don't know. I love my son. There's a good chance he's not going to make it into the NBA. So, you know, there's those kinds of passions, but that doesn't mean he couldn't be a reporter or a sports agent yeah. or, you know, blah, blah, blah. So, so there are people who kind of have a really clear passion, but most people don't. Now, There is a lot of pressure, uh, I think, and I think earlier, like when I was in high school in the 80s, like nobody, very few, it was weird for a high school kid to like talk about what job are Mm -hmm. they going to do or what career are they going to have. My sense is there's a lot more pressure now. High school kids feel a lot more pressure. And then in college, for sure. Now, I'm a believer in something of a mix. I don't believe like just follow your passion is necessarily good advice. Like, oh, I love medieval poetry or like, I do think that it's good to learn real skills when you graduate. Mm -hmm. But even if all you care about is a career, having something weird about you, something interesting about you, something surprising about you is really, really helpful. Like, you know, at Planet Money and I ran a podcasting company for a while, I've hired a lot of kids out of college And they really tend to look the same. They went to the same school, a similar, they went to certain schools. They, you know, so when you're in your fifties, everyone who's 21 seems like smart and cool and interesting and surprised. But, but the people had something that stuck out were the ones that were exciting to me. And I think to other hiring managers. So, you know, on my own, I went to Guatemala and I spent a summer and I, like wrote this article for an English language paper, or, you know, I was a fire, I remember a guy, I was a fireman in New Orleans or um, like finding ways to stand out that aren't necessarily on point. Now, none of this, you know, there still are really like 20th century, you know, if you want to go into investment banking, 
there is a path and it's a clear path. If you want to go into private equity, there is a path and you should talk to someone who isn't me about what that path is. I will say most people I know in that, those are ways to get rich. They really are. Like if you want to be rich, that's probably the safest way to get rich. It's also the safest way to just not enjoy your 20s and um, work 100-hour weeks and and get no sleep and have a jerky boss and and a lot of other things. Like, it's not for me, but if you feel like, no, no, I'm, I don't care about this passion stuff, or I'm the one in a million who actually has a passion for working 100 hours on a week on, you know, currency trading or whatever, that's fine. That's a perfectly valid choice. What I'm talking about is a different kind of approach, but my approach still, you can make good money and you can make like really good, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, millions. If you, you know, you, the whole point of my book is the world I grew up in, you sort of had to choose, like, am I going to make money or am I going to have an interesting diverse Mm -hmm. career? And I'm saying, no, no, you could do both. You really can do both. That doesn't mean you can't do the, you can have, you can get really rich and kind of hate your life or maybe like your life. But most people I know, you know, find that work very hard. You could definitely be a broke artist or whatever, like that's clearly available, but you can do mm. both. And it takes a combination of this exposing yourself to different things and paying attention to like what's rewarded, who gets promoted, who who gets more opportunities, and paying attention to what where you can fit into that mm-hmm. system. And I think it really has to do with what are your priorities. And do you, my dad always told me when I was in high school to choose something you that you're going to do forever that feels like you're not working. And I kind of always stuck with me is I want to enjoy my job. I want to excel. And I also want to feel like I'm putting in something, getting something out. And that's kind of why I deterred my career path, always thinking I'd be a teacher. And I spent a summer in Italy and was exposed to all these different classes that was never offered in my current college and high school and kind of broadened my ideas and kind of landed me where I am today. So I always say, get out and try something new, kind of just like what you were saying. Absolutely. Exactly. And the very thing you're doing running a podcast, having a vision for it. Like to someone like me, that's so exciting because when I was coming up, that just wasn't an option. Like if you communicate, you had to do what I did, which is like go work for someone who controls a radio station or a TV station Mm -hmm. or a newspaper. And then they have a lot of opinions that you have to. So I also would encourage people to have a bias for making stuff, trying stuff. It's both cool to do, but it's also a way to find out. Mm -hmm. Like when younger people ask me, oh, I want to be a journalist. You know, one thing I say is like, you got to know what journalists do because there's a lot lot of different things journalists do. There's there's interviewing, there's writing, there's research, there's editing, there's kind of visioning, having a vision for the whole newspaper or magazine or radio show or whatever it is. And those are slightly different career tracks. Those require different skills. Those reward different things. So by actually starting to do it, you're just positioning, like you'll have, like you're also, you're doing something now that you really enjoy, 
But two years from now, you're going to have so much more insight into, yeah. you know, do you want to go, do you want to become a producer at CNN? Do you want to write a book? Do you want to, like, you're going to just be like, oh, I know, I have a better sense of what that whole deal is like. I wanted to ask you before we end, I always ask everyone this, if you could give a piece of advice to a high school or college version of yourself today, what would you tell him? I mean, I definitely have like pretty much the standard old guy advice. Um, you know, I, I was actually talking to my 11-year-old about this two days ago. Like over the course of your life, there's going to be, you know, five, 10, maybe 15 people who are going to matter deeply in an enduring way. They're going to matter, you know, they're going to be loves of your life. They're going to be amazing bosses or colleagues. They're going to be real friends. You probably know a few of them now. You probably don't know most of them. 90% of the people around you right now, you're not going to have a relationship with probably, you know, in an ongoing way. And so I think especially young people, although us old people do this too, we have a tendency to be really affected by, like my son had just a typical middle school thing where some kids were kind of making fun of him. And, you know, I was, I was trying to say, and this is hard to hear for an 11 year old, sometimes hard to hear as a 52 year old, um, like they're nothing, they're not important. Like what's, you're going to find these like pockets of people over the course of your life. You know, if you have, if you have two or three really good bosses in your whole career, that's amazing. If you have, you know, three or four colleagues, like people who are kind of on a work journey with you and, you know, as you get older, you realize like there's people who you talk to once every five years or 10 years, but they're still really important. They're like checkpoints. So I wish I was more selective. Like I think about the people in high school who I was jealous of, like, or who I was, or early in my career, the people I was like wanted to model myself after. And most of them just don't matter in the long run. So that's, that feels like old guy advice that I couldn't have taken in when I was in high school, but I still stand by. The other thing is like, truly, truly, we old people do not understand. Like we, it's not just, we don't understand like what you're going through or TikTok or whatever. We don't understand the economy you're growing into. We don't understand the work job market you're in. Mm -hmm. We have terrible advice for you because we <laughs> grew up in a, literally it's like a different millennium you are going to have to make up your career more than maybe any generation ever in human history. Like, like if you look at, you know, my career path was different than my dad's, but it was like, whatever, 10%, 12% different. His was 12% different. Yours, I think is like, it's like the opposite. It's totally yeah. different. So your parents truly are idiots when it comes to this. The only smart ones are the ones who are like, I, I don't know. It's just so different. Like 90% of the jobs you're going to have, I like they might not exist now. And they definitely didn't exist when I graduated college. And the way jobs will work, and it's not just gig economy versus full-time employment. It's like how we even think about a job is going to change. I hope that sounds at least for some people like kind of exciting, mm -hmm. like your generation playfulness and experimentation are going to be rewarded. And there is no rule book. That doesn't mean you can't screw it up. You can. And, and the risks are higher now than they ever were. But 
the possibility of reinvention is higher now than it ever was. So I guess my number one advice then is don't listen to me for any advice and don't listen to anybody over like even 28 year olds are in a different economy. Mm -hmm. Don't listen. Like you're going to have to figure this out. Now we do know stuff. We know stuff about craft. Like I, I do know a lot about how to tell a good story, how to write a good story. We do have some maturity about how to deal with other people. That's stuff where older people have wisdom and at least some do and an experience to call upon. So I don't want to say ignore us on everything. And we're definitely going to keep talking because we're, old people we're going to keep talking but we don't know what your job path is because it's going to be so different and i hope that sounds fun maybe a little scary but also fun and not just like terrifying i completely agree i i honestly think the risk is going to show up in a reward and it's exciting the times that we're in that anyone could be anything and i think that's empowering to young people and you know, I, I thank you for coming on and sharing your expertise and your great experience in the world of economy and finance. And I'm sure our students are really going to love hearing about it. So thank you again. Well, it was really fun. You were fabulous at it. So thank, thank you very you. much. Thank All you. Right. Thanks for listening to See Uncovered. You can check out more at www.createeveryopportunity.org. Thanks again.